everyone, welcome back to the Atari Hacker Podcast. In today's episode, I have a treat for you because we have one of our most popular guests of all time, John Dijkstra from FastStacks blog. And John Dijkstra is really well liked in the community because he shares live case studies of his own sites. And actually his biggest site just hit $100,000 per month's revenue, which is really impressive. And actually to celebrate that, he is actually giving $200 off his course bundle where he shows exactly how he does it. So you can find all the info in the description and on the link below. So in this interview, because we already have an interview, which I recommend you go and check, click on the card above there if you haven't seen the first interview. And we're also focusing on things that he has done since the last time we've talked. So the first thing that he's done is he started flipping websites. So I wanted to know how he does it, how he changed his way of building sites and what he recommends you guys do to make more money from flipping websites. The second thing is he started doing a case study on age domains using odys.global. So I wanted to just catch up on that and understand how it's going for him and kind of talk about the difference of starting a website on an age domain versus starting a website on a fresh domain. And finally, one of the things that I was personally excited to talk to him about was his content production process, because John creates a lot of content for his sites, to be honest, more than we do. And so I was quite interested to understand how he does this. So maybe I can take something away and you can take something away from the way he does it. So we talk about content providers he uses and how he manages freelancers, project management and quality control and all these things that are, you know, maybe boring to people who don't run websites, but actually very important to people who do run websites. So if you're excited for this interview, don't forget to click on the subscribe button if you are on YouTube and like us, because it really helps us reach more people with our podcast and videos. And without further ado, let's get started with the interview. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey everyone, so John was one of our most popular podcasts. I think it was last year. Literally, I think I checked on YouTube, there's 18,000 views on your podcast, which is pretty good. Plus the audio downloads. So I think in total, we're probably close to 30K people who listened to this interview that we did together. People were really impressed with your success with your sites, etc. And you're probably one of the most transparent persons in the industry. So thank you for coming back to the podcast and thank you for the audience because I know they really enjoyed your podcast last time. So welcome back, John. Well, thanks for having me, Gal. It's good to be back. And uh, one thing that happened since last time, I think, you know, the way I kind of like promoted your interview was like taking the income report number you had on your last report, which I checked just before. The t it was 71000 something dollars, but I put the exact number or something. And now you actually broke $100,000 per month on that one website, right? So I just wanted to say congrats, actually. I've, I've actually never gotten hundred k from just affiliate and uh, advertising. I've gotten it from like selling products, etc. But actually, congratulations on that. It's definitely a big achievement. Well, thanks. Yeah, I was, uh, it's, it's been a good year. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. Yeah. Before we start with the interview, though, it's like you have been raising a bunch of training as well. So I thought you wanted to mention that to the audience. So go ahead, let, let them know what the offer is. No, I appreciate it. It's a course bundle. It's evolved over the years. I keep adding to it. It basically sets out A to Z what I do. And essentially, it's content-based sites, highly informational type content, monetized mm -hmm. mostly with ads, some affiliate stuff. And it just sets out what I've done to build up small portfolio of high-earning niche sites and that's the course and it's constantly evolving but you know as we'll talk throughout here there's also found foundations in this business which really is boils down to content 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 and i'll get into that for sure yeah i like i like your approach i like your like ads focused approach i think it's like a different spin on what we do but it's definitely a very successful it's one that i'm actually just buying more and more into to be honest like we have some projects now i'm looking at 
where I'm like, am I even going to bother with affiliate marketing focus first? Or like, so some I definitely want to do so. Like, there's some projects we're looking at right now that uh, that might follow onto what you're doing. So I recommend people go check it out. We'll put the URL below so people can check it out. Description on YouTube, and uh, you can go and check. John's course, but one thing I read on your blog and I wanted to start the interview on is that you, last time we did the interview, you mentioned that you never sold your websites and you didn't seem very interested in the idea of like flipping websites, you know, but it's something that has changed since last time because I was reading your blog and you mentioned how you sold some sites had like a profound impact on like how you are thinking about the business. So I just wanted to you to tell us like what happened and how it changed your approach to building websites. Yeah, well, I launched... It was about a year ago I launched a handful of new sites. Actually, I split up a larger site into a series of smaller sites. I, I tried a, everything in the kitchen sink concept for a mm -hmm. large site. It just wasn't working, so I broke it up and redirected it. And, and the traffic was pretty good, and those sites were growing as individual sites, not so much altogether. So then I ended up with, a, I believe it was six or seven websites. Financing and growing seven sites at once was very difficult. And I managed to get them to a point where they were earning well and they were good sites and I liked them, but I couldn't, you know, really reinvest every month the amount that was necessary or devote the time to each site that was necessary. So I decided to try selling them and that, and I had never sold a site in the past. I've always launched them, grown them for the intention of holding onto them and growing them for the long term. So it was really interesting and I sold them and they sold all, all successfully fairly quickly uh, for multiples I was happy with or at, at prices I was happy with. And it, it was neat to see the exit side of this business because I've always just focused on on the monthly revenue and trying to grow that. And that's difficult because you're, you're constantly reinvesting every month. And so, you know, sites are, are, losing money for many, many months, depending on how much content you put in, but they would lose money. And then eventually you try to get them to where they're profitable every month. But when you sell them, it's almost like this big bonus at the end, the, you know, the, <laughs> the sale. So that was cool. And that kind of opened my eyes to when you're, when you're looking at the long time return on investment with these sites is they don't actually have to earn a whole lot of money every month to realize sizable chunk of revenue coming in. So, so that was nice. And so that's now I'm, I'm now actually building one site for sure, probably two or three with the intention of selling, not within the next few months, but definitely within the next year or two. And so I've tweaked my overall publishing strategy with, with investing in sites with the intention to, to selling them, uh, not 10 or 15 years down the road when I wanted like cash out, but during the interim as part of the business model. Yeah, actually, we just sold one of our sites today, actually. So that's why I was interested in asking uh, you about this. But it's definitely an approach that I also wasn't buying into very much at the beginning. And after we sold like a site for like quite a bit of money, then, yeah, I realized the payout was nice. And also, as I looked at it as a way to de-risk some of the stuff. So the first site we sold, for example, it was because... To be frank, I had found some really good keywords that most of the competition didn't really understand the, the commercial intent behind. But I know that as soon as they will put us in HREFs or something, <laughs> they will all start <laughs> running after us. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. and I was like, we had good authority, but not the authority of the big guys that would definitely be able to run after us. So sometimes it feels like a way to kind of like stabilize and kind of like secure some of your earnings, you know, and then you just like, you can maybe put that money somewhere else. 
And so, yeah, it has been something that we've been looking at uh, recently as well. And I always tell the story of a health ambition. A lot of people know that story, but I literally had that, that discussion with Mark like two months before it crashed from the Coral Medic update, look, wrong time, wrong place, about selling it. I convinced him not to sell it. And it's like, I'm like, well, it's uh, like, I wish I started selling sites a bit earlier, you know? I'd probably be uh, like uh, quite a bit richer, to be honest. I had the same thing back before uh, the first Penguin. I had an offer, yeah? a six-figure offer for a site. And I said, no, this thing's going to grow tons. So I've <laughs> been there. I think uh, most people who have been in this industry for a while have somewhat of a similar story. You don't always win in this kind of stuff. And I think it's important to say that as well. But, you know, you can still win overall. My question to you following that was, would you ever sell your main site? Like this 100 Oh, I eventually will. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I will eventually sell it. No plans right now to sell it. But eventually, you know, the interesting process is the series of sites I sold, they're all smaller sites. They were all... Mm -hmm with the exception of one, which, which took a lot longer to sell, but six, I think it was five or six, whatever, smaller sites under $100,000, uh, they go very quickly. There's a lot larger pool of buyers who want a site, you know, in the twenty-five dollars to $60,000 range. So they go quickly. So it's not a lot of hassle to sell a site like that. But when you're looking at selling a big site, and I, I, you, you and Mark have sold sites for a lot more, the whole process is is a lot longer, at least at least from what I've heard from people. I actually did one time attempt to sell my biggest site. I'm sure glad I didn't actually, but it was still valued at, at quite a number. And you know the process was endless, and it never did ultimately sell. And you, did, you do all this work every month, getting all the all the numbers, and you know obviously a buyer is going to want a ton of due diligence as they should, but it puts a lot of work on the seller, right? So it's a hassle. Yeah. You have to put things in order as well. Like I found that, you know, the way you run a business, sometimes it's not in a sellable state. So like it's hard to transfer or like it's a mess, like your content organization is a mess or like some stuff. For example, the site we saw this week, the people cared a lot about Core Web Vitals just because, you know, it's kind of the flavor mm -hmm. of the month right now. And that yeah. site did not pass the Core Web Vitals. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be honest here. Yeah. It was a bit of a hassle. It's like we actually had to do a little bit of work to make things a bit better, etc. So sometimes you end up having, it takes you sometimes a month or two to get things in order. It's like from the accounting point of view as well, we found to actually be able to sell your site. But yeah, okay, that is uh, interesting. So now you're going to be building to sell a lot more, right? I am. I mean, there's only so many I could do. I don't know if I would do six or seven at the same time again. That was just a sort of happy accident that evolved. I, I didn't plan any of it, frankly. But, you know, going forward now, I'm, I'm being a little more deliberate about it. So launching, okay. you know, a few sites. I think I'd like to get them to the point where they're more than, you know, the twenty five or $50,000 sale mark. But, you know, still try to hopefully get a good number inside two years three years mm -hmm. would, would be nice. Yeah, it is definitely doable. And like, I mean, we've done it. Like the case study, the public case study we did on the cell was like, you know, mid six figures and it was 18 months old, the website. So That's it's amazing. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, they don't all go that well, right? But like this one did well, quite well. And yeah, so it's definitely possible. Uh, this was on high paying offers though, high paying offers on advertising because you need such large volume of traffic. I mean, I'm sure you can, to be honest, like with like Pinterest and all this stuff that you, you're doing, it's like, it's 
quite possible, to be honest. And talking about new site, my transition here was actually to your next case study, because you're doing a case study on odys.global uh, domain that you bought. And I'm really glad you're doing this case study because it's a, ca it's a case study I asked Spencer from Niche Process to do. We don't do like too much public case study, but I was, he was asking us like, oh, what should I do? And I told him, yeah, a lot of people would like to hear about like how do age domains do compared to new domains. And so it's an opportunity for me to ask you, First of all, to recap the case study for people and ask you about the expired domains, et cetera. So can you yeah, tell absolutely. people about the case study? Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, I'm actually very excited about the site. I have never done, it's buying an aged domain, which was, you know, these are sites that were, well, they were sites in the past. They aren't now. What Otis does is they look for these, they buy the, the domains, they vet them. And then they obviously sell them for a profit. So I've been reading, I'm sure you have, and lots of people watching and listening have read about some of the benefits of, and well, basically being able to get traffic from SEO a lot faster with an aged mm -hmm. domain. So I thought, why not? Let's, let's give it a shot. You know, it's a bit riskier in that like if, if the domain isn't good and, and no content ranks, you've, you've shelled up the money. These, they're, they're not that cheap and you put all this time in it and you end up nowhere and you, it takes you six to 12 months to realize this. So that's the risk. But, uh, you know, I've talked to other people who've done this and they've had great success with it. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. So basically, uh, let's see, I sort of worked out an arrangement with Otis and so I, I got a domain and I'm working on the site. I actually am, I'm excited, not just because it's an age domain though. I have found a really good niche that I think is an excellent fit for me. And I have found in the past that not all niches are good for every person. Like I, I just sort of have a preference for various types of websites and various niches. And I think everybody does. And sometimes I've, I've jumped into niches which just not a good fit for me, just the way I, mm -hmm. the, my workflow, my interests and all of that. And, you know, we've all read about, oh, that site was a big success that covers this niche. Well, then, you know, anybody can do it. Well, it's not really true, at least for me. So I'm excited because I, I found something I think it's going to work really well. Of course, that's assuming the age, the whole age domain thing works. Looks like it's working. It's already getting traffic. Mm -hmm. It's a couple months in. And so we'll see how it goes. I'm putting a big effort into it. I am building this with the intention to sell it within a few years, hopefully, but we'll see how it goes. Now, I think the potential traffic is enormous based on keyword research. So I got lots and lots of keywords. That's one thing I like or look for in a site is that there is a massive, massive pool of fairly easy to rank keywords. They don't have to be like super, super easy. There could be some competition, but you know it's definitely doable. But there needs to be tons of them. And because I like to, I like to invest in a lot, a lot, a lot yeah. of content. And so this niche definitely fits the bill. The downside is I think I don't have ads on the site yet. That's coming very, very soon. I don't think the ad revenue is going to be all that lucrative per thousand visitors. So that's going to be a big downside, but I'll, I'll have to wait and see. Okay. I mean, I wanted to ask you, like, you've started new domains, you've started aged domains. Like, it's hard to, like, put numbers on these things, but how does it feel Google picks up the content on the age domain versus the new domain uh, in terms of like, I guess, speed, you know? I would say it was probably within three weeks, four weeks. Mm -hmm. I've got over a hundred published pieces of content on that site inside two months. So I'm, I'm really, it's like a blitz. I'm, I'm doing a lot. So uh, I think I checked this morning. I have about 270 keywords that are registering in hrefs, uh, which means they're now in the top good. 100. So that's in about two months, which based on starting from scratch, 
that's pretty good. Look, looks like the whole age thing is working out because I don't think, you know, had I put the same amount of content on a new domain, would I get that many keywords already registering yeah. in Ahrefs? It'd probably be more like the six, maybe the eight or nine month mark. Now, the traffic's still low because most of these keywords are, you know, position 50, position 40, but it's happening. Things are happening. So it's really too early, I would say. Like right now, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing this ongoing write-up on the whole case study at fatsexblog.com. I think I call it something like my Otis experience or something like that with age domains. So it's really too early to conclude that this is definitely going to yeah, be yeah. a huge advantage. But, you know, I think at the 12-month mark, I'll, I'll be able to see. I, th- I think that'll, you know, you look at the traffic chart. Hopefully it's like hockey stick. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. I have, uh, I, I think it's going to do quite well. I had a question though. It's that my problem with buying uh, age domains and looking at these marketplaces, et cetera, is that sometimes like I pick a niche and I find a domain, but you know, it's the domain of like, let's say I want to do just a, a blog, you know, and it's like the domain of like an old product in that niche or something. It has a bit of a weird name, et cetera. So is the name kind of like in phase with the site you're building? Or is it a little bit, a little bit weird, a little bit off? Because that's usually my problem with expired domains or age domains. Yeah, it's a great point. Actually, it's pretty spot on, and it's even more spot on with the content that was on it in years past. I checked it. I checked it all. Well, actually, Otis is cool. They'll send you all, all the links, you know, to pages on Wayback Machine as to what content was on there, so you can see right away like what types of topics. So the topics are spot on. The name is quite good so yeah i would i would say it's been a, it's an excellent fit right now okay but it's something that i find complicated when you're like shopping for domains usually like you will find domains in the niche you want but they're kind of like you know the name the name of a weird product or something it's, it's like my plan actually it's like i i have some projects going on with expired domains that i'm not necessarily sharing publicly but the plan for me is to kind of like get them going for a year and then going for a full rebranding with full serial run redirect to you know, a ten dollar domain that's more branded, and then right. but like give it a bit of a life first, and show show to Google like, look, okay, this age domain, there's stuff happening, and then when it's getting momentum, then just do as if as when a brand rebrands, you know, like for example, Transferwise just rebranded to Wise, for example, they redirected their whole site, and I'm sure their rankings they would be shaky a bit, but they'll come back to what they were. So that's kind of my plan with this, but it's, I, I need to validate this in real life right now. It's work in progress as well, which is why I'm just asking questions at this point. Um, <laughs> will you buy more expired domains based on your ex- uh, experience, uh, both for new sites, but also for redirecting web- to your websites? Like, would you do that? Because I know you split domains, but... If, if this works out as well as I hope, yes, absolutely. For new websites, I doubt I would get into the buying them with the sole intention of just doing a redirect. I don't think I would do that. I okay. like the idea. You know, they, they cost thousands of dollars. Well, yeah, anywhere yeah. from like seven hundred is the low end up to five plus thousand. I think I think I would buy them solely for the purpose of building out a site on them. Yeah. So I've done. I've picked up some sites for redirects, but I didn't pick them up from Odys because it's a bit expensive, as you say. Uh, I picked them up from like good idea auctions. For example, uh, I use a tool called Spamzilla. And it just has, has like a lot of filters for multiple marketplaces for like drop domains, etc. And you do find some good deals. Like I found you know, DR35 sites or something that I've paid like 400 bucks for or something. And so with like some really good links, I mean, I had links from like The Verge and even New York Times, et cetera, from sites I picked up from there. 
And so I've done it for redirects. It does, it's not as powerful as it sounds. Like, you know, you pick a site that has like links from New York Times, you're like, oh my God, that's amazing, etc. <laughs> yeah, you'll get a yeah. boost, but it doesn't feel as good. And so that's why I wanted to ask you if you would consider doing something like this, basically. So I, I, it, you get a boost, but it's not, it doesn't sound, it doesn't look as good as if you like the New York Times did link to your website, basically, in terms of ranking boost from what I've seen. But one thing that you've hinted at is that you're going very hard in terms of content for that case study site, right? From your site, I've read that you've published 100 blog posts in two months, I think. It's about that, maybe 115, 120 now, yeah, daily. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And so it's one of the things that I'm always like scratching my head when I'm like reading your content. I'm like, how the hell do you output so much content? Uh, and we did not really cover that last time. We talked more about monetization. We talked more about like keyword research, et cetera. And, and that's something I really want to dive in into like, how you get so much content done on your sites because you're managing multiple sites and all your sites have a ton of pages and it's uh it's something that yeah it's i'm I'm very impressed by and so I wanted to start very basic do you manage your content first of all like what does your uh, your average day in the life looks like when you're you're working yeah well i I used to manage all the content. I hired somebody recently who I'm training and, and basically he's up and running. So he he's now actually being like sort of the the last stop with quality control. So he's sort of taking mm-hmm. that. But until recently, I, I did manage it. I still do most of the keyword research. That's sort mm-hmm. of my, you know, month, I, I do that maybe a couple times a month. And other than that, once, once the keyword research, once the keywords are added to a Google sheet that everybody else who needs, who's producing content, be it writer access agency or any writers who are working directly with me, they all have access to these various spreadsheets. They pick up the topics and go with it and then gets handed off to VAs who then format it, put it on the site, schedule them out. And then head VA does a quality check. And then now this project manager I hired, he's doing the final quality check, making sure everything's properly done. And then it gets published. So that's the workflow in a nutshell. So Really, it's just a matter of setting that up and paying for the content. I don't write at all. But I also should clarify that it seems like a lot of content, but it's actually not that much compared to a lot of other sites. Like my largest site gets two new posts a day, okay, which, which isn't a ton. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's good, but they're long posts and they're fairly involved posts. And then the other sites would get, my, I got one small site I'm kicking along that might get five or 10 a month. And then this new, this new site I'm, re- I'm really investing big in. Like that's anywhere from one to four per day. Kind of depends where the workflow ends up. I mean, as soon as they're ready, we're publishing, publishing, publishing. So, I mean, I know people are publishing 20, 30 a day. So, you know, I wouldn't qualify myself as, as like publishing a ton of content. But, I mean, it's enough to grow for sure. And, and it boils down to workflow and, you know, how much, I mean, if you look at my income reports, you can see the content investment is pretty heavy every month. But again, there's people who are investing a hundred thousand a month just in content alone. I'm, I'm not doing anywhere close to that. So you mentioned that you have writers that you work with and you have writer access as an agency. Is that how your content team is split? Is that like, or, or is there other sources of content for your websites? Uh, that's it right now. Yeah. So. You know, I've, I've hired some uh, freelance writers directly off uh, ProBlog or Job Board. Great, great place to go find mm-hmm. excellent, excellent writers. And so I have uh, four right now working with me across the different sites. And then I also get a lot of uh, content from Writer Access. I work with a content manager there who then manages my, I guess I've got like a favorites list of, of writers on there that have 
cobbled together over the years, and then she manages the content with them. I actually checked their website. Uh, I I mean, I heard about them, but I never really looked deep. But like, I was reading your blog, then I checked them out. There's no pricing or anything. Is I guess there's like pretty high minimum uh, amount of continuity to order to work with them, right? Not really. They have a you know a monthly fee just to access the account. Although uh, AppSumo right now, well, at least they did. I think they still oh, have really? um, okay. uh, lifetime. Anyways, the cost I think ranges anywhere. The low the lowest would be either two or three cents per word, which mm-hmm. is pretty in line with with like. Most okay, other yeah. providers are not going to go lower than that. Like I, I actually, my minimum is four cents. I often will spend six and there are some writers who I work with. It's eight. And then once in a while it will go up to 10. It, it depends on the nature of the project. So, you know, I'm not doing the two or three cents a word and that sort of roughly works out. Like I would say the five or six cents a word works out with the uh, freelancers who work directly with me as well. That's sort of how much it comes to. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself getting better quality from freelancers or from the content marketplaces or is it roughly similar? I hire the freelancers for very specific content. So I, see. I would say like, you know, if I assign that to writer access, I'm probably getting better content with the, with the freelancers because that's sort of what they're interested in and that's what they've written about in the past. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm working with them. The other big benefit is I actually pay the freelancers hourly. And so they also do a lot of content updating and they can do editing. And, you know, if, you, if you're paying someone by the word and then you ask them to go do a, a content update, well, you know, I mean, they could spend hours and really yeah, only write totally. 500 words. I mean, they're not going to do that, right? They're going to say, no, I can't, I can't do this. So that's worked out really well. There's a, you know, it's, it's a different arrangement that's, that's working out quite well. It's actually, yeah, it's a debate we've had a lot. I mean, we had to pay people hourly for content updates as well because it's like per word, they just get screwed, basically. They just don't write that much. They need to research a lot. But paying paying freelance writers, specialized with freelance writers by hour rather than by word, I feel like you get better quality of content from what we've tried as well. Like they just care more. Like, uh, And so it's worked better for us. That's a lot of writers still. Like do you use a project management tool? Like how does it look like from the... <laughs> Are you just doing their email, everything? No, man, I've tried a few of them because uh, uh-huh. you know, I've read. I don't like them. I spent more time just setting it up and then I did set it up. And then, you know, I'm working with uh, VAs and everybody else. And, and they're just, I'm like, so what do you think? Is, is this working or not? Working? And everybody's just like, I hate it. It's just too complicated. <laughs> we're spending okay. more time messing around trying to just manage the software than actually getting stuff done. I'm like, I 100% agree. Shut it down. I use, uh, personally, I use Apple Notes pretty much like it like organizes everything. It's instant. It's on all my devices. I can search. I, you know, it's so fast. That manages a lot for the, just for me. And then Google Sheets. For everything else with everybody else just a ton of sheets and everybody gets access to them and that does the job that that's all i use all right. and then email so less less is more i recommend you check the you check craft notes if you use apple notes it's what i use to prepare the notes for this podcast so you can check it out but basically it is basically like a native app for apple but like you have a few more options for like the images etc like you can organize content a little bit more uh, around. Oh, okay. And yeah. I, I quite enjoy it, but like it feels like a very native, minimalist app as well. Nice. Yeah, I was just looking at the notes you provided. So yeah, um, looks good. <laughs> okay. Well, how does the review process for the content that arise work? I think you mentioned that you have a VA that checks it and now you're project manager, but like how much effort goes into that and how often maybe you send content back for edits, et cetera? Like how does the, the ping works basically? 
Yeah. Okay. So I actually work with a content manager at Writer Access, which is a it's a managed uh-huh. service. Okay. So they're the first level now. I don't know if they're doing a whole lot. Like they, they sort of just to check that the content is per the instructions provided. They're not really looking at writing quality. They're not paid to do that. So, so as long as the instructions were followed, she approves it. So then the VAs, they look more just for the, basically the formatting, which they've done on this, on the site. So they'll look, make sure the formatting's done, the internal linking is done and all that. And then in terms of the quality of the article itself, that's done with that, the project manager I recently hired who goes through and makes sure that the, the articles, he, he knows exactly what I'm looking for and then bets it that way. And I'm still spot checking. I still spot check maybe once a week. I go through, I actually still, I'm the only one who applies uh, tags. I'm very, very particular about taxonomies and which articles get which taxonomies, particularly tags, because I have a lot of tags, but I use them methodically. So I'll apply the tags and I'll spot check content and make sure that the instructions are, you know, that things are are going the way I, I wanted them to go. So that that's sort of the quality control. I think the quality control could be improved even further, like almost basically hiring a dedicated editor mm-hmm. to actually review this stuff along the line. And, and that probably would be the next hire would be a full-time person who's like really combing through the content, carefully doing further edits, making it even better. Yeah, so before you had that project manager, you were basically checking all of the content yourself, right? That was me, yeah. Yeah, so that that must have taken a lot of your time, I guess, across all your Well, sites. again, probably not as diligent in the quality control as, as yeah, I should yeah. have been. You know how it goes, you, you kind of get fast. And, 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 you know, the other thing is, is, all the writers that take first off with the writers, the freelancers that work direct, like their, their content is, I don't really check their content. Uh-huh. Like it's, they know exactly what to do. They do, they're doing a, a great job. So that doesn't really get vetted. And then writer access. I work with the same 20 to 30 writers over and over. So again, they're pretty well versed with, with what I'm doing. Um, I, I really pay close attention when new writers come aboard and, and comb through, but once they've been doing it and writing for my sites for several months, it's, you know, they, they do a good job. I actually had that question in my notes that said, like, do you think done is better than perfect? But I think I got the answer, basically. It's like, I mean, you kind of need to to output this level of content. But I, I, it's like, it's funny because I think we're on the other side and we're often paying for it. Like, we want to release, like, really good stuff. But what we pay for is in terms of how much stuff we release. So it's like, and that's why we tend to try to go for bigger keywords, which just change our strategy, et cetera, because we we can't just rank for like all these small keywords that you're going after because it's like the amount of time we spend on each piece. And as a result, we have to like hit harder. And then when we go for higher keywords, we need better content because you won't rank without better content. And it's kind of that thing. So it's quite, um, it's like, uh, it's like talking to you, I'm always thinking about like, should we rebalance things to like relax a bit and then just be able to output more volume? And, you know, seeing from your main site is definitely something that we should be looking at. I mean, what do you think? It's a balancing act. I mean, you know, like for instance, I actually do a mix. Like for instance, I started this series with one freelancer where the articles uh-huh. are 5,000 to 15,000 words. Like it's probably some That's of the best good. content and it, and it's, it's highly recent. It takes her 40 to 50 hours to write one article. So I'm trying that on one of, one of my sites and I'm, I'm really happy with it. The weird thing is, is the site, like 
I've shoveled content onto this thing and like these articles and the traffic's still at a plateau. So I'm, mm. you know, fingers crossed I'm going to break through and that this stuff's going to start working. But so I am doing some of the stuff that you and Mark have, have always pretty much done for the years, yeah, like yeah. really high quality, like thorough, extensive, well-written. And so I'm doing some of that as well. Uh, it's okay. a mix. I tend to, again, it's where the, the freelancers that that would be more geared toward them rather than I an see. outfit like Writer Access. I see. Uh, that, I guess we, you do similar to us. We split our content between like what we call main content and support content. So yeah. what often happens is we do like main content, then we do keyword research from that piece of content. We'll essentially try to find the topics we mentioned and keywords related to that. And although the pieces that we wouldn't write otherwise to maybe freelance writers and things like that and try to expand on that. So if we do link building to that main content, it just radiates to like 10, 12 pages and not just that one page and try to get a better bank for our buck, pretty much. It's a, it's a great strategy. Yeah, it's kind of like kind of building a mini silo for each like epic piece of content and trying to get more out of it pretty much rather than just that one page only. Yeah, for sure. My next question is, uh, do you use on-page tools? Because obviously I, they're like all the hype right now. Yeah, you know, I, it's amazing. I forgot that part of the workflow because it's actually very important. Um, mm -hmm. One nice reason or benefit of with uh, a, man, a content manager at Writer Access is I've implemented that all the writers now have access, uh, login accounts to Market Muse, and then they also use uh, Hrefs, and I use Answer Socrates. I think it's Answer Socrates. Some I don't know this one actually. It's so it's sorry I forget. It's it's like Answer the Public, but it's uh, free. Answer the okay. <laughs> okay. I'm uh, no, I think I got that wrong. Anyways, the point is, is they no, it's are. That's AnswerSocrates.com, actually. I'm, I'm on it, it right now. Yeah, okay. It's it's a great site. It's like Answer the Public, but it's free for like, you're not cut off at two searches a day. So anyway, um, all the writers, even freelance writer access regardless, are going to run content and keywords through all three of those software. And Market Muse is particularly helpful. I think Market Muse, I find, and, and, it's like surfer, I think, what is it? Surfer SEO or SEO mm -hmm. surfer. Yeah, similar, very right? similar, but very, very similar. But the point is it gives them a lot of guidance in terms of what the word count should be, various subtopics to include in the article, keywords to include. And so I, I think it helps them. It gives them a lot of guidance. And I'm not saying that if you score it really well with e either of those tools that you're going to be guaranteed number one rankings. That's not the point yeah. of it. The point is, is that it's it's going to make it better. I believe that, but it also gives writers some guidance parameters with which to go about it, and I think it's helpful for them. I find it helpful when I write articles. Actually, I use it for myself. I just find it helpful. Again, I, I'm not naive to think I'm going to hit number one just because I'm using this stuff. I'm not the only one using it, but it's it's helpful. So that's part of the workflow for everyone. Anyone who produces a piece of content uses those three tools as well. Do you set up the brief for them in the tool? or Because, you know, usually you need to pick your competitors that is going to like extract keywords from and things like that. I tend to like doing the briefs in Surfer SEO, so I get to pick the competitors it's going to take for. So I, I don't pick like competitors that seem to rank because they're really high DR, for example, or, you know, for other reasons than the quality of their content. And I try to focus on these pages to get the data from, and then I pick the keywords in there as well, so there's no like bullshit stuff basically and uh i i tend to prefer doing that and that's kind of like how i do briefs for the writers i do that and i add the notes in the notes section basically so i'm wondering if you do that or not 
No, I don't, I don't go to the extent that you do. Basically what I do in the spreadsheet is I'll provide the keyword. Usually it's a phrase that they are to use in these tools and leave it at that and, and see okay. what. So it's, it's already fairly long, long tail, right? It's not a seed. It's, it's oh, long yeah, tail. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Pertinent to the article. And then, so like market muse, you don't need to input competitors or any other info. Hmm. You just put in that one phrase and it'll spit out what, you know, what you should do for that article. It's very, it's, I try to keep it as simple as possible. I, I don't care to write briefs for every article I'm ordering right now. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, fair enough is the volume. <laughs> That's the volume question I was asking. It's literally, we're going back to yeah. Are you screening for more content providers all the time? And like, what are you looking for with a content provider you'd be like wanting to use regularly? Like, how do you find them, basically? It's a good question. I've used many, many content providers over the years, and I'm, I will use more. Writer Access has sort of been this staple for years and there have been times where i've i've stopped using them and use other people and and so forth so yeah i'm i'm always on looking for a good content provider and i will try in fact i'm doing a case study right now for fat stacks where i am ordering the same topic from 37 different content providers and I will provide the PDF of every article provided with the same instructions and the same keyword from every provider. And people can judge for themselves. This is what you get. This is how much it costs per word. And this is something I've been meaning to do for a long time. I did it with a few agencies, but I've never sort of gone through and like literally found every content provider I could find on. I'm sure that I'm sure I missed some, but Anyways, and then people can judge for themselves. You know, mentioning which content providers I use, especially the the more service side where they have a set number of writers, it's hard because I mention it and a lot of readers will go order from it and they get, they get, they tell me they can handle it, but they can't handle it. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, the service is garbage and a lot of people are upset and I don't blame them for being upset because it's a lot of money. And so, you know, I can say writer access confidently because they literally have, it's more of a broker. They have tens of thousands of writers or at least thousands anyway, they can, they can handle the volume. So what I thought I would do is like, here you go. Here's the 37 articles I got. You pick which one yeah. do you like the best for the for the rate and leave it at that. So, okay, but that's going to take me a few weeks to uh, get out. I'm I'm just waiting for all the articles right now. We actually did that a long time ago, but only for like ten, I think, or something like that. And yeah, that was quite interesting. We've done that for link building providers, and that got us the most drama we ever got from uh, Atari Hacker. <laughs> um, it got you. It got us the most drama. Like people basically were oh. upset because we basically say, well, these links are not very good for a lot of them. And it's like, uh, it didn't yeah. go so well. So I think I like the idea of like you decide. And actually, it, this case study is interesting because we're doing another case study on Atari Hacker right now. It's going to bridge into our next topic, which is AI content. So right now we're actually doing a case study. Basically, the question we're asking and we're working on this with Mark is, is AI content now as good as shitty writers or like really bad writers? <laughs> and can you, could you replace this? And so like there's, I have a blind video to shoot tomorrow actually where we ordered the same article from I think two or three StarTex broker. And the other, the same article was also made on conversion.ai. And then the game is I have to pick which one is the best for each topic. And then we decide, and then we also do a survey with, and actually, if you want to participate and we can include you in there, we can send you the articles and you can actually tell us what you think. I don't know which ones are which Mark is organizing. And the goal, the goal is going to establish if AI content can now match 
low, at least the low end of human writers. And so I wanted to know what you, have you tried this stuff and what's your opinion on it? Because it's getting very popular these days. Yes, I have tried it. And I think, I think I agree with you that it's probably as good and in some cases better than really bad writing. So yeah, I think it's already at that stage because I've tried a handful of, of these tools. I think it's going to eventually take over a lot of writing and I think it's mm -hmm. going to make the cost of content go down. But I also think the there's still going to be some level, I suppose, of human involvement in terms of, you know, some storytelling, perhaps keyword selection, what topics you actually go for. Maybe in 20 years, it's not even going to matter anymore. I don't, I don't know. But like looking, you know, in the, in the near future here. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I think it's obviously a huge disruptor to what we're doing. So, yeah, we need to pay attention to it and adopt it and use it rather than ignore it. Yeah, I think for a long time I was like, guys, it's not ready, it's not ready. But now I think we're getting to the point where it's it's starting to have proper practical uses. And um, it's like I just checked one out of the article, and I think I can tell which one is AI. But I actually think I like the one AI that's AI better than the one from the writer. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's something that uh, that could really change. Like, what do you think is going to happen to the industry when AI content, like in three to five years, when AI content kind of like starts becoming something that will probably be more common, especially for your approach to like long tail queries, right? It, where it probably is very low competition. And so these would be, even if your content is not perfect, this would probably be the place where you can start sneaking some traffic from this kind of like automated AI content, no? Oh yeah, for sure. No question about it. I think it's going to be used extensively. Yeah. You know, I, I, it, it's hard to say, but I think it's going mm -hmm. to have a major impact. And, and I think publishers are going to have to embrace it. In, in some mm -hmm. way or, and I think we also have to wait and see how Google is going to treat it. Right. And see, see, see what happens. I mean, what, what is, what if Google comes out and says, listen, we, we are going to do our best to filter for AI content. Not that they're going to be able to, but they might, or yeah, they yeah. might say, or they might say, we're all about AI content. We're producing it. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Do the content, you know? You know? <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I think there's just so, so many unknowns, but I think at the end of the day, I don't think Google is going to be able to ultimately filter for it because it's going to be indecipherable to, you know, a lot of topics. And, you know, perhaps the whole publishing model from the human standpoint is going to be almost exclusively in the realm of the influencer style of publishing where, People are going to, you know, if, if you oh, want people, to produce yeah. content, you know, it's like the journalists on Substack, people go and they pay and they read because they want to read what they say. Like, you know, AI content is not going to replace writers on Substack. That's not going to happen, right? That's that's a whole different level of writing. But for your bread and butter niche content type stuff, yeah. And so I think publishers, if they want to have the human side of the writing involved, are going to have to think of ways to be able to contribute something that AI can't do and that, but, but people still want. So it's going to be a disruptor for sure, big time. Yeah, I think it's like self-driving cars, you know? It's kind of like on that level for content. So it's it's interesting. It's not ready yet, but I can see that in like in two to three years, we could be like getting quite deep into that and it would like start being something that we use quite a lot, basically. To go back to your content production, is there any part of your content production I didn't cover in my questions or like something that you, you do that I, we didn't talk about? Well, you know, my course goes into it a lot, but that's the keyword research process. That is uh -huh. so absolutely fundamental to what I do. 
I really seek out keywords where I think I have a reasonable chance of ranking without link building. I, I don't invest. So it looks like oh, yeah, I invest sorry, a lot of, building. Uh, you know, I, it looks like I invest a lot in the content and, and I do, but I also don't have a link building budget at all. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all content, but that means I need to find the keywords that I can rank without investing in link building. So that's the difference, which means it all boils down to the keywords I go after. It's going to make a big difference whether content's going to succeed. So that's a huge part of it. And I'm constantly evolving my processes and, you know, trying to find angles to find really good keywords that are going to work well. But beyond that, once once the topics are on the sheets and the and the writers take over, that's pretty much the workflow. You know, you know what's been a difficult aspect to automate is internal linking. It's still a time-consuming process and very, very manual. It, you know, requires a manual effort rather than an automated effort. And what do you uh, use for that? Like you just do it manually? Oh yeah. You know, I actually like the Ahrefs link I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's helped a lot in terms of being able to hand a spreadsheet over to uh, VAs to do it. And so they actually do that. But that's not perfect either. There are, you know, bad opportunities listed, missed opportunities. So again, then I have, I, I've really worked on instructing every level of people t- on how to find the most relevant articles that need to get linked to and from when we publish new content. And that's taken a while, but I think I think it's working well in terms of you know basically having the team do that. But again, it, that's a that's a that's a tough part of the whole concept, but a very very important part. So one thing with internal linking as well that I think almost nobody talks about is like it's like it's one thing to figure out how to build internal links, and usually you want to build internal links on your pages that would have the most links, etc. But, you know, as our sites age for us, you know, there's pages that maybe used to be very important to us because we used to rank really high. Maybe that's not so much the case anymore. It's happened. It cycles, you know, and we still have like heavy internal linking to these pages. And we end up with like our best pages having a lot of links to pages that don't really matter to us that that much anymore. And we're just leaking all that page rank to these pages that actually don't really make us money that much anymore. And so there's also for us, one of the challenges is the cleanup as well (laughs) and kind of like identifying the pages that used to be important but are not so important anymore and actually removing internal links so that the other internal links carry more weight for the pages that we actually care about. And it's, for me, that would be nice to have a tool for that too. <laughs> Maybe some kind of like internal link ratio or something that tells you like how much traffic against how much how many internal links or something for the pages so you can tell which ones you're like overly internal link to and maybe where you could redirect the page rank to basically. But like that's something that uh, we've been... Uh, we've been thinking a lot about actually recently. It's an interesting topic. Uh, you know, I am, what, what do they call that? Like sculpting page rank sculpting was the, yeah. the old term years ago. Yeah. I've, I've read about that. You know, I kind of take a different view about internal linking and taxonomies and entire website okay. architecture. And my view is to make it as easy as possible for Google to basically crawl the entire site. Which means I don't really mind if I have a high traffic article linking to a series of articles that are ever going to get a lot of traffic. I almost just view that, hey, the the easier I make for Google to just crawl through the entire site, the better it's going to be for the entire site. And that's that's a big reason I use a lot of tags. Like for my Mm -hmm. largest site, I think I have about 250 tags. 
But each one will have at least four or five articles that apply to that tag, and some of them might have 30. So there's no one-offs. But I index these tag archives, which a lot of people would tell you not to do. But I do index them, and I index the category pages as well. And what that does is – and then I, I link from the home page to what I call it's, – it's a manual, a nicer design of basically a site map. But instead of linking just to individual articles, I link to all the tags and the categories right from the home page. So I'm creating this very, very easy flow for Google to rip through basically my entire site. And that's what I do. I, I totally get the, the sculpting approach. Like that also makes sense. Um, but this is – I heard yeah. a woman talk who was an in-house SEO for a large, large website at some conference. I've only been to one conference at the only conference I ever went to. And it just made a lot of sense. She said to, to, to do this approach and that just made a lot of sense. So it's what I've done. I think it, I mean, honestly, like I'm not Google, I can't tell if it's better or worse. I think it makes sense. It also makes sense to do that. It's basically you're creating these category pages. It's nice because the tags, what you do is you have the anchor text as well. So you can give context through the anchor text to the tag page. And then like basically links from that page just link to relevant articles. So it's not too bad. We tend to, because we build, again, it, it ties back to how we build websites and how you're able to do large volumes of content. Because we build smaller sites, we tend to build custom category pages as well. Like we tend to build custom hub pages, etc. If you check the authority system, like I show like how I build custom hub pages, etc. And so so that's because our sites tend to be quite a bit smaller than yours as well. And so as a result, we can afford to, you know, micromanage these things a little bit more than you do. But I think for the size of the sites you build, there's no way I would have time to build 250 hub pages. <laughs> um, so, so, so it totally makes sense. It's like it's just a, it's a, it's just more, a more minimalist version of what we're doing on a larger scale, which, you know, makes sense for larger sites pretty much. Another thing that I wanted to mention that we were talking about keyword research a little bit. I want to go back to it for a second, mostly because I wanted to talk about a topic that you do a lot of keyword research that I care a lot about recently, which is how unreliable keyword tools are these days and how bullshit the numbers are. It's like we've basically been pushing the envelope more and more in the sense that we used to write, as I said, because we don't write that much content, we tended to pick like bigger keywords, but they were quite competitive. And it's like, Sometimes we still felt it wasn't worth the effort. So we we're like, okay, let's downgrade a bit. And now we're at the point where we're writing for keywords that have zero search volume in like Ahrefs or SEM or something like this and get thousands and thousands of visits per month, even though, and now we're, we're, we have this game of guessing keywords based on footprints where we literally like identify some keywords that are big and just use our brain to be like, okay, if this works, you know, best bicycle for single leg people or something like that works, then maybe best bicycle for people who have one hand maybe works even though there's no search volume or something. And so you get the idea. We just try to, to guess keywords and, and it's been working really, really well for us. So I just wanted to know how you feel about the data you get from the keyword tools these days and kind of the evolution over the past two years when, you know, there used to be this Avast data from Avast antivirus that like SEMrush, Ahrefs, et cetera, used to get. And they don't get anymore. They stopped selling it for privacy concerns. And so like, I feel like the quality of keyword tools has decreased a lot, but you do that a lot. So I wanted to know how you feel about this. Yeah, well, I, because I have a different strategy than you, basically I focus on any keyword that will register as a keyword, I mm. will go after, okay? okay? If it shows zero to 10 monthly search volume, I don't care. I'm totally good with that. As long as it picks up as a keyword. You know how when you search in Ahrefs, um, if it's not a keyword, it'll just basically say no data, right? There's no data yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah. 
right? So that's not a registered keyword. Um, does it necessarily mean I'd ignore it? If I would still think it's a it's a worthwhile topic to cover, I'll do it. I wouldn't expect much from it. But if it picks up, even if it says zero to 10 per month, I'm happy to grab that because my experience, it's gonna be way more traffic than zero to 10. Like, it's yep. just the way it is. And so, because I've noticed that in the past, it's like, well, these are still good keywords. They're actually searches. It's almost like the Google auto suggest keywords you know, if it picks up the phrase, it can be a eight word phrase that it picks up when you're sort of typing in there. That's a keyword to me. And it probably would register zero to 10 in Ahrefs, but I don't care because it's still a search. It's still searched by people and probably more than it reported. So I, I in fact, I filter out for like high difficulty, you know, and just go straight for the really, really long tail, simpler stuff. And it's been working for me. Yeah, essentially, that's what we found as well. It's like something that we've done over the last few years. And I really feel keyword data has deteriorated quite significantly since this large amount of data sold by Avast is not sold to keyword tools anymore. Mm. And it's kind of like it's interesting because, you know, they still have all the historical data that was sold to them. But now this data is coming on to in a few months, it's going to be two years, actually that they haven't received data from them anymore. And so like all the click data and all that stuff, you know, for keywords, it's basically getting outdated at this point. And I'm not sure they have other data sources for this. So it makes me doubt even more what I see in the keyword tool. So it's kind of nice to hear that. I think you've been doing that for longer than us, but to hear you confirm that basically. I always say that like Ahrefs and similar are guidelines. They're not mm -hmm. anything you could count on 100%. I get a lot of good ideas as well. Like I'll, I'll look at my own analytics and look at what's ranking and what's doing well. And I'll, I'll figure out a whole bunch of new topics to cover just, just yeah. based on topics that are already ranking, like that are very similar, but they're, they're different search intent. So, you know, it's still, it's still actually thinking about it. Like I, I can, I can find like one good keyword and then I'll, I'll be able to turn that just thinking about the topic into another 10 articles. So it's really a mix of the tools and just coming up with ideas on your own. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's important because a lot of beginners who start with this, they tend to treat what the data they get from these big QO tools as gospel, where it's like, this is the truth, etc. It's quite important yeah. to understand that the data is like, it's very, very, very rounded and quite often wrong, to be honest. When I look at like top pages in Ahrefs versus top pages in analytics, for example, uh, you know, it gets it about like 50 to 60 percent right. But there's yeah. still like a quite a bit that are missed, you know, so it's like you need to be a little bit careful. And the people who understand the limits of the tools are, tend to be the people who will be the smartest at picking topics as well. So I think it's from what I found. So I think it's quite interesting. I wanted to close this interview on going back to kind of like a broader or more open question. We talked about AI content, but in general, with things like bigger, bigger, like uh, publisher sites, you know, kind of like traditional publishers getting more into the realm of building websites and people like Dot Dash also pushing in this industry, etc. I had to know what your vision is of this industry in three to five years. And do you still think it's going to be as easy to start websites as like small publishers, like most people who are listening to this podcast? Uh, and which level of success like you've achieved, for example, on your main site? Like, how do you feel about this whole direction of where we're going? Yeah, I think the whether it's more difficult to start or not, I think it's always kind of been the same. And the reason mm -hmm. I say that is, yes, there's more competition always as more and more publishers get on board. But at the same time, now, like, I don't know about you, but when I started, like, the mobile phone 
wasn't really a source of traffic, right? Which mm-hmm. meant like as the phone has become so popular, like overall traffic and let's say page it's views crazy. in the world are probably like tenfold of what they were, you know, 10 years yeah. ago. So there's a lot more audience and a lot more traffic. So, you know, the, I, I view that as like, I still think it's a good opportunity. I think it, anybody's doing this because I've got a fat sacks forum where I've got a lot mm-hmm. of people who are just starting out and there are people who are getting great results in 12 months with the, the similar strategy that I'm using. There's also people on there that do more of what you and Mark do and they're getting good results as well going for the higher search. So it's more competitive, but there's a larger audience out there. And I think it just boils up. Like literally there are so many keywords. There are probably more keywords out there that haven't been covered and that there isn't mm-hmm. an article for than there is. Like most websites tend to kind of cover the same stuff. The key is find, finding those topics that people haven't covered. And there are literally millions of them. And it's just trying, well, billions. It's a matter of, of finding them. And that's going to give you a leg in. It's sort of like your big break. Once you start getting really good traffic for a particular topic to a new site, that sort of really helps cement and establish a site to grow from there, I've found. So it's it's just a matter of, of getting that first strike. So I think I think there's future potential. I think AI is going to be a disruptor. I really don't know how, but, you know, just, just as we were talking about it, you know, I was thinking like, you know, content like product reviews, for instance, I tend to veer from them, but mm-hmm. you know, is, is AI going to be able to do a review, say like uh, the wire cutter based ah. on their testing various products and going through it? I think there's a type of, of piece of content that is going to still require like yeah. the, the human input. And there's going to be lots of those. And, you know, I don't do a lot of the review stuff, but I think that's just one example where, you know, you can distinguish the two. You know what? I also am excited about how high the valuations are for websites. Like it wasn't that long ago where like 25, 25 was, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. the industry standard. And now we're, we're pushing, like I got a 45 multiple on most of my sites when I sold them, which is pretty high up. I'm very happy with that type of multiple. I mean, that's almost like doubling the actual sale value of websites from not too many years ago, which which goes to show that this is a definitely a, a growing sort of industry and a lot more money is getting poured into it. So I agree. So it's kind of like also offsetting the um, the difficulty because it's like it's harder, but you also get paid out more when you make it work. So I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think the... In terms of the AI content stuff, it's like I, I think it's going to just force people to level up their content to do, yeah, as you said, like add the value that the AI cannot add. But maybe low-level writers, uh, they could be replaced, basically. I can see I can see that. Oh, coming. yeah. 100%. Uh, I agree with you there. So I, I think that's what's going to happen. I think, you know, when I talked about main content and support content, I could yeah. see your main content being this kind of like really high, well-crafted content you know, human-made, et cetera. And you just use AI to brainstorm all the subtopics and make some subpages below that and grab some traffic, you know? I can see that strategy coming in for people to build sites. And it's, I mean, it's nice as a site builder. You get to focus on like really cool projects for your content and build some cool stuff. And you have the AI do the rest, provided you can still make good money. I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun job, actually. So I'm all for it if it works out that way. Anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? 
No, it's uh, great questions. Got me thinking okay. Okay. <laughs> about what I'm doing, so appreciate it. Uh, all right. Well, I guess it's a mini mastermind as well. Okay. Well, I just wanted to thank you for coming, and we are going to be putting a link to uh, John's course below in the description or in the description of the podcast if you're listening, so you can go check this out. And I want you to thank you for coming. I'm sure there will be a, th a third podcast in, in not too long. <laughs> it's always great discussions when we talk. So thank you for coming, John. And uh, we really appreciate. Have a good week, I guess. Yeah, thanks very much, Gal. I, I enjoyed it. 